Also today, the second part of our interview with Tony Cozier from his perspective of five decades reporting and following cricket in the Caribbean. Cow Corner with Peter Newlands on Grandstand Digital, on iTunes and on Radio Australia across the Pacific. Joined once again by my colleague Dan Lonigan. Dan, welcome to you. Another interesting week in cricket with flat wickets the order of the day in the Test Match at Trent Bridge and in the Australia A-India A-Series in Northern Australia. Welcome to you again. Thanks, Peter. And an altercation, of course, yep. between Tadeja of India and Jimmy Anderson. Uh, the serial offender, I suppose, for want of a better expression for England. He gets involved in these altercations, doesn't he? That does like to sledge, and uh, he's been known to, I think, sledge in a bit of an ugly fashion. Mind you, so have the Australians. I thought they were a bit harsh on him in the last Astra series out here in the Australian summer, and uh, Jimmy is going to face a charge. Uh, he batted really well, though, didn't he? I mean, he hasn't batted all that well throughout his career. I know he's a bowler, but you would hope that he would uh, bat a bit better as a number 11 batsman, but put on that record partnership for the 10th week with Joe Root as it was a real run fest that test match at Trent Bridge but we'll just have to watch uh, with interest as to whether there'll be a penalty dished out to him regarding this altercation with Jadeja. Yeah, it's a five game series and this is a condensed series five test matches in five weeks where is the window to conduct this hearing? Will Anderson miss games? Is there enough time to organise this hearing? Is it a ploy by India to try and take in England's best bowler out of the series? So this is, these are serious uh, charges levelled against Anderson and England have thrown one back at Jadeja as well. So I'm not quite sure what they're all playing out. But the fact that it wasn't televised, it's not, not on film anywhere, I'm not sure whether that'll either uh, take a bit of the sting out of the whole story or if indeed it might inflame it. No doubt about that. It's going to be fascinating. It is, of course, uh, a series that has a lot of interest because of England uh, really starting to make changes now. For a long, long time, Pete, they've had the same team, but uh, a lot of changes, some forced, some unforced over the last few months or so after the disastrous Ashes campaign. And good to see the young Australian, Sam Robson, making some runs. Uh, Ali's uh, proving to be a pretty handy uh, sort of batting all-rounder, isn't he, in that uh, lower middle order. Sure uh, Plunkett's been given a chance with the ball as well. So uh, it is a, a different-looking England team, but gee, they need their captain, Alistair Cook, to stand up. He is just a shadow of the player that was out here in 2010-2011. And they lost to Sri Lanka at home. They had to work very hard in that game at Trent Bridge. But four tests in four weeks, that surely is going to stretch the resources. In fact, it will stretch the resources and the depth of the respective playing squads. A bit like the, the World Cup of soccer. You've got to have two teams virtually to get through mm. uh, that many games in such a short span of time. What did you make of the Australia A-India A series in Brisbane, Dan? Once again, flat wickets, the order of, of the day. But Phil Hughes in the runs. Once again, Alex Doolan, a 91 in Australia A's second innings. Uh, James Faulkner, a 94. And Ben Cutting, what a spectacular player he is. I'm not sure about his, as to whether he belongs at the level up from this, but can he influence a game or what with both bat and ball? 
He sure can. He sure can. I mean, when he gets going with the bat, he's a very destructive player, isn't he? He just needs to get a bit more consistency. I think he's going to be a very good limited overs player, Ben Cutting. He's been close to test selection a few years ago against New Zealand, but hasn't ever reached those heights since. Uh, The player I like, who I would love to see being given a go, whether he's got the pace for test level, a bit like Trent Copeland, I'm not sure. He played a couple of tests, Mm. but he continues to prove himself uh, at the level below, and that is Chad Sayers for South Australia. Been a wonderful bowler for South Australia for the last couple of seasons or so in the Sheffield Shield taken eight wickets over the two matches for Australia. I took five in this recent match where of course the wicket was very flat indeed and uh, Ojahar of India continue to make runs. I've been having nightmares the Australian A team about him. He's a long way from being part of the test lineup. He's played one one day match a couple of T20 internationals for India but he made 430 runs in three digs but Chad Sayers bowled really well and uh, as you mentioned good to see Hughes and Doolan getting some runs in the second innings and Faulkner as well with Faulkner and Doolan when Doolan's in the test side and Faulkner pretty close. Uh, they obviously uh, just needed to get going. Uh, Doolan have been a bit disappointing early in the series but uh, did find some runs uh, in that second dig. So on to the one days now as players uh, start to really get into some serious cricket with the season unbelievably yeah. not that far no, away no, Pete. No it's not. Hey, can I ask you one more question about this Australia A series? We interviewed Sam Whiteman on the program last week. Do you think he's jumped them all and uh, is almost number two as wicketkeeper now? Behind Brad Hatt? Who have we got? Whiteman? Oh, well, Tim Neville. Payne. T- Payne wouldn't be too far out of the mix. Wade, there or thereabouts. I personally think... Ludeman's a pretty handy Ludeman. player. Uh, Hartley's a handy player. You can throw an absolute blanket over over, over that lot with uh, Haddon advancing in years. But you're right. I mean, Whiteman's been given an opportunity in this series. Payne has been given lots of chances in these A, a matches in the past. It doesn't mean he's that far off it. I think the uh, the opening brace of matches in the Shield season will tell us a lot. But yeah, you're right, Whiteman is certainly uh, making his move. What about Simon Kadic? Uh, it's been a great career. I mean, he uh, averaged 45 in Test cricket, 56 Tests, uh, 4,188 runs, took 21 wickets. A bit of a reincarnation. In fact, quite a few reincarnations as a Test player. He's decided that's it. He won't be playing any more cricket. Uh, I think the Perth Scorchers were keen on him captaining them again in the Big Bash competition. Uh, but he's decided, no, that's it. He'll concentrate on his job as uh, coordinator of player development uh, and player welfare with the GWS Giants in the AFL. He's been doing some running also on match day yeah. uh, in the AFL this year. He sure has been. Yeah, he does. Uh, he looks in good shape. It's been some, something a bit different for him. But, uh, look, it's been a, a great career. He was a wonderful player, a wonderful servant for Australian cricket. Very gritty player. Oh, yeah, gritty player, talented player. Let's have a chat to him next on Cow Corner, Dan. Simon Kadich to reflect on his playing career. This is Cow Corner, ABC Grandstand's Cricket Show. This is Cow Corner. Dan Lonigan and Peter Newlands with you. Great to have your company. Well, during the week, one of the finest first class and test careers in recent years in Australia came to an end. Simon Kadich decided not to play for the Perth Scorchers in the Big Bash League this summer, putting to an end a career that produced over 19,000 first-class runs and over 4,000 runs at test level and an average of 45. He made 10 test centuries and 25 fifties and also took 21 wickets. He's now involved in the AFL as the Giants' player coordinator. He joins us on Cow Corner this week. Well, Simon, was it a tough decision to finally pull the pin on the game you love and the game you played so well for so many years? Oh, look, uh, yes and no. Um, I think everyone that retires knows that at some point, uh, you know, when time's up. And um, for a number of reasons, I felt that uh, I've uh, had a pretty good run. And with a young family now, I decided that you know, I needed to have 
more time at home and obviously um, with the new role of the Giants, that was uh, obviously a big part of it as well. So, um, yeah, to finish up the way we did by winning the Big Bash is pretty much a fairy tale ending for me personally and it was great to be um, see all the boys rewarded for all their hard work over the last couple of years for the Scorchers. With your role at the Giants and being involved in a, in a new and I'd say very exciting sporting environment, did that make it that, that bit easier to be immersed in one sport to sort of say goodbye to another? Oh, yes and no. Look, I mean, the Giants were more than happy for me to keep playing on. So um, there certainly wasn't any pressure from them. It was it was more a personal decision. My wife's due with our second child in about a month's time. So I just felt the time was right. And, and the boys, the Scorchers boys, obviously, I feel like they're on the right track with Justin and, and he's done a great job in the last 18 months. So I feel like I've left them in good hands and, um, you know, it's their time now and I guess my time with my family and, and obviously the new role with the Giants. You mentioned, Simon, a fitting ending to captain the Perth Scorchers to the Big Bash title. You started your career in WA and you finished uh, in New South Wales in regard to first-class cricket. So, look, it was the uh, the full turning of, uh, of the wheel, if you like, that uh, you go back to WA and finish with a title after starting with a title all those years ago. Yeah, look, it's, it's quite ironic how it all panned out because I was three years ago when the Big Bash started with the new teams. I um, thought I was actually going to have six weeks off during that period and then Mickey Arthur called me right at the end and said, look, I know you're not contracted anywhere. I know your family's from Perth. Why don't you come back here and have Christmas with your family, family and play a little bit of cricket for us? And um, he, ever, he never ended up coaching the Scorchers because of getting the Aussie job. But um, from a family point of view, you know, seeing my family have time with my son, young son and being able to play there again, you know, I, I really appreciated that um, opportunity and, and to get to play, I guess, my final game at the Wacker where I started was, um, you know, a nice way to go out. Do you feel in a way that you're a player that spanned two eras of the game, finishing up in the with a win in the Big Bash, but going back to the years where something like the Big Bash wasn't in any way on the horizon in cricket? Yeah, look, I guess I've seen both eras of uh, Australian cricket where when I first started, it was still probably semi-professional. There was, you know, there was no contracts for state cricketers and, um, you know, there, there certainly wasn't the rewards there is nowadays uh, for Cricket Australia contracts and even state contracts. So, um, oh, I'm, I'm really glad I played in the era I did. You know, I played with some great, some of the legends of Australian cricket and um, I sort of, I guess when we started, we, we knew we were playing cricket for the right reasons and, um you know, that was the, the honour of playing for Australia and it certainly wasn't about money back then. But um, nowadays, you know, the rewards are great and, and that's, you know, it's fantastic for the players to be able to choose cricket as a career and get well rewarded for it. So, um, yeah, it's been, you know, I've been blessed to have played for so long. I never thought I'd play for 18 years and, um, you know, it's been some great memories. Simon, you had to reinvent yourself at test level. You started as a middle order player, became an opener. You must be very proud of what you achieved in the end as a test player. Oh, look, um, yeah, look, I certainly look back on my career, um, you know, with a lot of fond memories. And, you know, at one stage there, I thought I might not get past one test. And then uh, I got stuck on 20-odd for a while. And, and then, you know, the last opportunity I got, um, thankfully, I grabbed it with both hands. And, um, you know, it was, it was great to be able to play for Australia again and, and really enjoy wearing the baggy green. So um, I guess the fondest memories I have are playing in, you know, winning teams with Australia and, state teams and, uh, and obviously in England as well. So uh, you know, I'm, I'm very blessed to have had such a long career. Now, Simon, as, as people who follow the game know, a few years ago you had quite a lot to say about dynamics 
selection procedures, uh, other things as well in relation to your own career. Do you, from this perspective, uh, are you happy with the way you went about that? Yeah, look, I don't have any regrets at all. Um, I said what I said for a reason and and certainly believe that. And uh, at the end of the day, you know, that's what you do. You, you speak your, your mind and I got it off my chest and whether people agree with it or not, then that's, you know, that's up to them to decide. But, um, yeah, at the time I felt that was, you know, that was the case and uh, I stand by that. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, what's happened's happened and, and things always happen for a reason. So while I was very disappointed at the time, you know, life goes on and I've, I've been lucky to have spent the last sort of three years that happened um, enjoying watching my son grow up and enjoying playing, you know, cricket in different places in the world. So it wasn't going to stop me still enjoying my cricket. So um, from that point of view, you know, what's done is done. Simon, I always like to ask these questions. Can I ask you now to reflect on perhaps a, a toughest opponent that you came across? Yeah, look, there were plenty. Um, you know, I mean, in t- test level, obviously, Burley was probably... Um, the toughest opponent uh, from a bowling point of view. I guess Warney, when I played against him in county cricket and, and when he was playing for Victoria, he was, you know, he was obviously one of the greatest, if not the greatest bowler of all time. So between those two, though, they were definitely, I think, my toughest opponents. And I guess uh, at times, you know, in the 05 Ashes, I found Andrew Flintoff probably uh, a handful and likewise a few of my teammates. So, um, you know, it's, it's funny how things go. You, you face blokes in different times when you're in form and you don't find them too bad and then other times when you're out of form you feel like uh, there's no way you can you know get them off the square or, or just survive so um, look that's the way cricket goes there's always periods like that as a batsman and Simon we've been lucky to watch you and follow you for a long time congratulations on a great career good luck with the impending birth of your second son and enjoy the Giants and your family thanks for joining us on Cow Corner thanks very much guys this is Cow Corner now Pete a couple of weeks ago, you uh, were able to catch up with uh, Tony Cozier. We heard the first part of yeah. that wonderful interview with the legendary West Indian broadcaster. Time for part two. And we pick it, or we kick it off, I should say, with you asking him about the current state of West Indies cricket. And whether or not the Test cricket itself has got a, a good, robust future in that part of the world. I think there is. Um, as I say, the. The public is still interested, even though they don't turn up to the game. They listen on the radio. They watch on television. You hear the call-in programs to the sports call-in programs on the radio. They're all arguing about who should be in the team and who shouldn't be in the team and what went wrong and what went right. Uh, so there, there is the interest still there. Now, can it be sustained with the kind of crowds that come out for Test cricket? And the only way it will be sustained is by... India coming and bringing their money with them, with um, the English tourists coming in and filling the stands when West Indies play against England. I mean, England came here for three one-day internationals and three T20s back in March and April. And the grounds in Kensington Oval in Barbados and the Sir Vivian Richards Stadium in Antigua look very much like, like Wembley. All the um, the flags of St. George all over the place and signs from the cities all over England and um, club teams and all that. They were draped all over those grounds and the majority of the people in the ground, the spectators, were English tourists. Of course, these are tourist islands are very attractive on their own, far less from cricket, but they come out and um, combine the two. 
cricket and, uh, and a holiday. So we depend very heavily on in India and England as well for the revenue we get. On Cow Corner, I'm speaking with Tony Cozier for, for decades, the voice of cricket in the Caribbean. Tony, does it make you wonder sometimes just how remarkable it was perhaps that the West Indies were so dominant in the game for so long and, and so recently? That's quite amazing. I think that's one of the, the most um, remarkable stories in sport, that um, the, the, the islands which I, just, which I mentioned and how small they are and how diverse they are. When Australia comes to the West Indies, let us say, and the islands are independent, all independent, all have their own flags and their own governments and their own anthems, and all are represented by their own people at the United Nations separately. So when Australia comes to the West Indies and they go from island to island, they have to go through customs, they have to go through immigration, they have to get visas for different places. It is really a mess. Um, and, you know, they come together as a West Indies team. What was it? Was it just a unique combination of circumstances? Clearly a wonderful generation of talented players, perhaps who hone their skills in the county championship, which maybe doesn't happen as much anymore. But there must have been a remarkable confluence of circumstances that, that led to those wonderful teams being so dominant. Yeah, there was. Uh, for instance, um, then, um, you're looking back, let's say, 40 years. Cricket was the be-all and end-all as far as sport was concerned. Now you've got um, other sports competing for the natural talent of the young sportsmen. Volleyball was not on when I was at school. I know it's a very long time ago. But uh, volleyball and, and field hockey and, and swimming and badminton and basketball, all, all these sports were non-existent. You had cricket during the season, cricket season, you had football, soccer, that is, out of season. And then you had track and field. And those are the three main sports at school. That's all you had. Now you've got all these others competing for the attention of the, the young sportsmen so that the, the pool for the cricketers um, it has now mm. declined appreciably. Um, you know, you look at Usain Bolt. I mean, why, why isn't he bowling fast for the West Indies instead of running fast for Jamaica? <laughs> uh, you know, the, these are the kind of questions you ask. I see Johan Blake, who is um, won the silver medal behind Bolt mm. at the 2012 Olympics, said he would rather play cricket for Jamaica and the West Indies than, than run at the Olympics. He's a cricket nut. He really is and can play a bit as well, but at club level. There must have been still, for all that, uh, the, the leadership involved in those days and the, the level of professionalism that they achieved. Uh, uh, who who were the sort of the key figures in all of that? Was it was it Lloyd's personality, or was it more than just that? Well, then you you, you speak about Lloyd, but let's go back before that because mm. Frank Whirl, um, who went to Australia in sixty sixty one, um, the first black captain of the West Indies, appointed by the West Indies on a permanent basis. Before that, uh, the islands were um, very much divided racially, so that you had the white populations and. White captains led the team up until the 1960s when Frank Wills made the first captain. And he went to Australia with that team. Well, a great team, the Tide Test in 1960 in Brisbane. Wonderful series. Something like 100,000 people lining the streets of Melbourne when the series was over to hail the West Indies and say, come back soon, and so on and so forth. Now, if he had failed as the first black captain, 
I don't, that would have been a tremendous setback to the majority population here, but it wasn't. It really lifted them even further. Um, and, you know, the success of that, of that era, of those teams, you get, you've got plenty of role models from those teams. You had the Richards and Andy Roberts from Antigua, which had, was never in the mainstream of West Indies cricket. The Leeward Islands were not in the, the domestic competition until 1966. The Richards' father was a very good fast bowler but could not even play first-class cricket. So that when they did come in, the people from those islands got an example from Richards and Roberts and so on that they could follow. And immediately, um, the number of players from the Leewards came into the West Indies side, whereas before, they had not even had an opportunity to play for a South cricket. Therefore, I guess it makes it uh, all the more vital that the likes of Chris Gale and uh, Sunil Ryan and the other stars who are making their name and earning fame and indeed fortune in professional T20 leagues uh, maintain their, their links with the game and indeed they perhaps in their own way, if differently, are a new generation of role models. Do you see it that way? Yeah, certainly um, Lloyd, um, correction, um, Gale is very, very popular um, in Jamaica especially, which is his home island, but all the way through the Caribbean. Uh, he's now opened an academy for young players in Jamaica, um, young disadvantaged players from um, his area in Jamaica, and that academy is going now. There's a high-performance centre in Barbados, which uh, is churning out a couple of very good players. Um, the problem, as you mentioned earlier, and it is a problem, is that uh, whereas back in the, the 80s, the great teams that the West Indies had um, could hone their skills in English county cricket in different conditions against good teams filled with international players. In 1984, I think it was, around there anyhow, um, there were 17 West Indian players playing county cricket. Now, there are no more than two, two or three, um, because of the fact that uh, the counties can't afford to sign on West Indies players because they're playing during, nowadays, playing during the English season. This series against New Zealand, for instance, coincided with the England season. And therefore, the, the counties are not going to sign up players who are playing in a test series here. Then you've got the Caribbean Premier League, which will involve most of the top players, and that is right in the middle of the English season. So they don't have the opportunity of going into county cricket and... Uh, learning about the game. They played league cricket to begin with, Lancashire leagues and so on, and then county cricket was opened up to them, and it made a big difference. Tony, it's uh, been fascinating to talk to you with your, your vast breadth of experience. So you've got the, the T20 league in the Caribbean to, to look forward to, which will, as you described earlier, will generate enthusiasm and bring people into the grounds. And um, uh, beyond that, Let's, let's hope, from my point of view, and I'm sure many uh, other cricket lovers' points of view, that uh, we see that maroon cap playing a, a good level of international cricket for, for many years to come. Well, I think everyone here has hoped that as well. And, uh, you know, we've hoped that now for something like 15 years, and it hasn't quite come about. Legendary West Indian commentator Tony Cozier. Well done, Pete, on getting Tony Cozier. Been involved in the game for a long, long time. Been there during the great days. And, of course, you're still there covering them during their very dark days and you just don't know whether they'll ever improve that much, the West Indies, and get back to the days when they were the best team in the world. 
well, if if they do, it'll be quite a story. But it was a when you think about it, as, as we said in the interview, what a remarkable, remarkable thing it was that they became such a such a dominant force for so long uh, with with the backdrop of the game in that region as it is. In Test cricket overnight, after the first day of the second Test at Lords, India is nine for two hundred and ninety. It recovered well after being seven for one hundred and forty-five at one stage. Ajinka Rahami, one hundred and three for India. James Anderson took four wickets. After two days of the Test match in Gaul, South Africa, nine for 455. Sri Lanka, none for 30 in reply. For South Africa, Dean Elgar, 103, and JP Dumini, a century as well. Dan, I've got a start of the week for you. We've all enjoyed watching the World Cup of Soccer, and uh, that applies to millions upon millions of people around the planet over the last month. But here's a, here's a fact for you. The Champions League trophy final from last year, that was India versus England, had a larger television audience, I'm led to believe, and I've read, than the World Cup final itself. That says something about the absolutely enormous market for the game there is in the subcontinent. And in a way, how lucky cricket is to have that. And that's why India are so powerful. Pete, great to catch up. Really enjoyed the show. Uh, We're off for a couple of weeks because the Commonwealth Games are on on this time slot on Grandstand Digital for the next couple of weeks. But uh, we'll be back again in a few weeks' time for Cow Corner. Look forward to your company then.